Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What's the role of the poet in our society? Do we look to poetry for deep truths about our world, or do we look to poetry for something different? And if poetry is just, or even mostly, about truth, then what distinguishes it from philosophy or science? These are very old questions, the kinds of questions you find Plato pondering over more than two centuries ago. But they will always be worth asking especially in this moment, when our relationship with truth feels as fluid as it's ever been. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest, and I can't believe I'm saying this, is the one and only Werner Herzog. He's a filmmaker, poet, and author of the new book, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. Herzog is known for his films like Grizzly Man and Fitzcarraldo, among many others. But he thinks of himself as a poet and a writer more than he does a filmmaker. And you can certainly hear that side of him in his films. We only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel, a cheap novel. And we have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication, overwhelming growth and overwhelming lack of order. Even the the stars up here in in the sky look like a mess. I think it's fair to say that Herzog is one of our greatest living filmmakers. He's on my personal Mount Rushmore, for sure. What I've always loved about his work, and you can hear it a little bit in that clip, is that it has this dual quality of being both realistic and poetic at the same time. That is hard to pull off. And no one does it better than Herzog. 
which is why I was delighted to see that he just released a memoir. It's not really an autobiography. It's about his approach to life and what he's after in his art. And he's after something he calls ecstatic truth. I explore that with him in this conversation. We also talk about a few other things, like whether humanity is destroying itself and why he wants to go to Mars just for a few days. We taped this conversation on October 11th. Hi, good morning. This is Werner Herzog. <laughs> this is Sean Elling. Pleasure to, to meet you. I'll try to be concise enough so that you don't collect too much garbage. <laughs> Trust me, my, uh, my editors and producers are used to getting lots of garbage from me, and they're, they're experts at cleaning it up. So a lot of people know you as a filmmaker, obviously, but you're really a writer. You've always been a writer. And this memoir is great. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. It, it really is. And it's also quite distinctive. But it's not really a biography. It's something else. Uh, how would you describe this book? Well, some of it is, of course, furious storytelling, and much of it is um, origins of ideas, not so much the events. If you look for event, event, uh, you shouldn't read the book. For example, all of a sudden, interspersed, there are five ballads of the little soldier. I was... Uh, with an elite commando unit of uh, mostly child soldiers between 8 and 11, and uh, some ballads pop up out of nowhere. But, of course, they're an integral part of what I'm writing, and it is probably very much the style as well, because my um, experience in the real world was unique or different from what other filmmakers have gone through. It was different. I'm fairly certain about that. And because of that, my writing, my style is different. And I think you are correct saying that I'm a filmmaker as well. At the moment, it seems to be more a distraction because since about more than four decades, I keep uh, preaching to deaf ears, look at my writing. It will probably outlive my films. So uh, it's at the moment, the focus of what uh, what I'm doing. It's still weird to hear one of the greatest, I think, living filmmakers describe film as a distraction. <laughs> at the moment, yes, it is, yeah, yeah. You have always described in interviews the universe as a place of overwhelming chaos, and you write a good bit about your childhood, which was also a bit chaotic. Was your worldview, was that worldview in particular, shaped pretty early in your life? It is obvious when you look at the universe that it's hostile out there, not made for us. We cannot survive easily in the in the cosmos anywhere else. We haven't found a place yet. Mars is possibly reachable, but we shouldn't settle there. It's uh, It would be obscene to leave our planet behind and not keep it inhabitable and try to make a, a foreign planet habitable for us. So, of course, uh, and you look out into the universe, you don't even need to have a telescope. You don't need to be an astronomer to know it is chaotic, it is hostile, it is against life. Not against all life. We can assume that there's life out there, some forms of life, maybe microbic life, little uh, creatures or like as much life as there's the snot in the nose of your toddler. 
actually it's biological. So that may happen when we encounter the aliens out there. But we can assume there's life out there among the trillions of stars because we share the same physics with a cosmos. We share the same chemistry and we share the same history. So let's assume there's some forms of life not reachable for us right now. And we don't need to reach it. I've always found that people really want to believe that there's a certain order to the universe because it makes the world feel more coherent. And in that sense, maybe a little more hospitable. Yes. But I'm not sure anything is more obvious than the fact that the universe is totally indifferent <laughs> to us. Yeah. The harmony of the spheres. Yeah. A very old idea. Of course, there's no harmony of spheres. It's a figment of our fantasy, of our thinking. But it makes our existence more tolerable in a way, believing that there's some sort of harmony out there. Otherwise, the uh, universe is completely and utterly indifferent vis-a-vis -vis what's going on here and on our planet and what we are doing and our toils and our daily struggles. It's monumentally indifferent and we have to face that and it's quite okay, why not? And the second thing I wanted to say, my childhood was not chaotic. Uh, it was chaotic uh, in the first 14 days of my life because I was born in the city of Munich. It was carpet bombed several times. Uh, when I was uh, only two weeks old, everything around us uh, where we lived was destroyed in, in ruins. So she fled. She fled into the most uh, remote part of the Bavarian mountains. And then from there on, after I was two weeks old, it was a wonderful childhood. Couldn't have been better. As a refugee or displaced by war, I grew up in a, in a wonderful, really beautiful valley in the mountains. And um, as a wild child almost, in anarchy, because there was an absence of fathers, no drill sergeant to tell us what to do and how to behave. So um, it it was just really, really good. What do you think's behind that? Is it the simplicity of that, the sense of purpose and shared mission that, that comes with that kind of strife? Why is there such beauty and such hardship? It's not simplicity because um, life was harsh. We all grew up in, in real poverty. In my case, we didn't have running water. You had to go to the well with, uh, with a bucket, hardly any electricity, uh, not enough to eat. That was the only harsh thing. Didn't have enough to eat for two, two and a half years. And I was always hungry. And that's why I mind when I see that people are throwing too much food away. I don't like to see that. I don't raise my voice, but it's a kind of consumerism that I that I can tolerate. Uh, it's people who do not have my experience. But otherwise, uh, it was a wonderful time. You had to invent your own toys. You had to invent your own um, games. You had to fabricate your tools. You had to start learning by trial and error. You see, there was not much guidance. In in fact, uh, our mother didn't educate us that much. We re-educated her as boys. 
And only a few things uh, that stick in my mind. She was a very principled woman, smoking all her life, a heavy smoker. And when uh, my older brother and I were something like 19, 18, 19, 20 or so, we had a motorcycle and it was a time of no helmets and so And we had some minor injuries on a, on a weekly basis, sliding uh, somehow into a ditch or whatever. And my mother said to us, I do not want to be in a position to bury one of my sons. And she said it once or twice, and, and we didn't pay attention. And one day she's at a dinner table, and she smokes, and she stubs out her cigarette after two puffs. And she says, uh, boys, I think you are going to sell your motorcycle. It's not healthy. It's not good. And this, by the way, was my last cigarette. She never ever smoked a cigarette again, and we sold our motorcycle within a week. So it's uh, that kind of education. And is it true that you didn't even know that cinema existed until you were 11? I, I did not because um, there was hardly any electricity. There were no telephones. I made my first phone call when I was 17. Probably kids who are five years old or 10 years old cannot believe that. But until today, I don't even have a cell phone. Uh, making a phone call is something strange and foreign for me. But, um, of course, there was no theater or no cinema, and a traveling projectionist came to this uh, schoolhouse. It was one classroom for uh, first till fourth grade. We were something like 25 kids. And the older ones would teach us the alphabet and help the teacher. So school was also a very intense and beautiful experience. And a projectionist came and showed two films. First time I ever learned that there was such a thing like cinema. And it didn't impress me at all. It was just lousy, lousy stuff. When did you realize you were going to be a filmmaker? I think you used the word destiny at some point. You realized you were destined to, to make films. Yeah, but that came at a time when there was a very intense moment, a few weeks of very intense insights. And I call it now... You better touch it with a pair of pliers because it sounds pathetic. Uh, I had some sort of uh, insight or illumination or I had became known to my own destiny. And that was a time when I started a very dramatic religious phase, when I started to travel on foot and where I knew I was a poet and I had to be a poet. And it was some sort of duty. Destiny was meant for me to to accept what was out there for me. Why do you think destiny exists in this universe, in a universe that, that does seem so um, indifferent? <laughs> there are certain laws out in the universe that um, proceed, and we are in this uh, mill grinding us, but calling it destiny, I don't know. It's uh, It would be pretentious. Uh, it's more a human thought. Probably the universe functions in a different way. Nature functions in a different way than our uh, interpretation of it. Things just happen and, and we're storytelling creatures, right? No. No, we, we have uh, something like uh, free will, which, uh, of course, is determined by lots of borderlines and lots of obstacles. 
and lots of restrictions. But yet uh, we do have choices. And do we have a choice against the plowing on of destiny? I don't know. But the way you talk about being a poet and being a filmmaker and being a writer, it's as though you didn't really have a choice. It shows you. Yes, there was something out that I had to accept. I understood my destiny. And it's, I keep saying, touch this term only with a pair of pliers. It sounds pretentious. But fact is, I understood my duties, my task out there, my destiny in a way. What do I have to do with my life? Where am I? and a sense of responsibility and duty in it. The part of the book where you write about truth and not having much interest in making, in your words, purely factual films, was a joy to read for me for lots of reasons. What is it about factual filmmaking that you find too constraining or too narrow or too small? Let's face it, uh, all these films that are fact-based are legitimate. Many of them are journalism, a form of journalism, and you better stick to the facts. You don't invent. You do not put out fake news. And I adhere to it, but it depends on what I'm doing. I made a film, for example, on, with Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union. And uh, you do not invent. You do not stylize. It's just a very clear task that you have in front of you. Otherwise, I try to depart from the mere facts because they do not illuminate you. The phone directory does not illuminate you, although everything is correct in there. But it doesn't give you insight. It um, does not inspire anything in you. So I have uh, done things where I always make it clear I'm inventing now or later I, I make it clear to the audience, here there's invention. But I do in documentaries, for example, things that you would normally do only for, or in uh, feature films, casting, rehearsing, repeating a scene or repeating some uh, statement. When it's way too long, I ask, please, can we do it again? But uh, concentrate to the essentials. So I, I do all these things. I do it in feature films as well, of course, much more inventive. I do it in literature. All uh, my poetry is not really that much fact-based. You know, I, I sometimes run into these sorts of questions as a journalist, thinking about not just the role of journalism, but also the limits of journalism, the limits of just telling the facts. You know, the facts can tell us what happened, but it can't tell us what it means. Mm -hmm. um, to do that requires something different, something more. Right. As you were saying, if your films and books were just factual, it would just be journalism, wouldn't it? And, and, you're, and you're not trying to be a journalist. Yeah. Read the phone directory instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you say you're after something called ecstatic truth. What is that? Well, I coined this term. It's a lovely phrase. Yes. Uh, in a way, I try to find an expression or confronting or search for something that is truthful in a way that forces us to step outside of ourselves. Ekstasis in ancient Greek means outside, standing outside of our existence. 
And uh, it's more an e experience you would find uh, with late medieval mystics, for example, although I don't want to compare myself to them. It's something which starts to invent and starts to dig into something deeper. I say truth now with great caution because philosophy has no consensus what truth is all about, nor do mathematicians know, nor does the Pope in Rome really know. So we have to be cautious with that. But in my opinion, truth is somewhere out there. We sense it. It's a human thing. We sense it. We know it. We, we yearn for it. We want to find it. And it's like a, like a dim light somewhere. We know the direction and, and the quest uh, to find it, the approaching, the voyage to it. That's what, what is important. And that's what I'm doing in, in my films, in my books. And uh, it gives a certain meaning to my life or our lives. Does the way you think about truth and art and your responsibilities change at all in this twisted era of misinformation and fake news and, and all of that? Well, you have to become street smart. And in particular now, you have to become uh, smart with the media and with the internet and artificial intelligence. So when it comes to media, let's say mainstream or even, even outside of mainstream media, the news, do not trust anyone, not one. Do not trust anyone, but try to corroborate important informations by going to parallel sources. When you uh, read about, uh, let's say, the Western interpretation about a big event, just why don't you switch over to Al Jazeera, for example? All of a sudden, it looks different. And from there, you move to the Internet and read the full speech of a politician or switch in into Chinese sources. Or you just name it. can be anything. But do not trust anything or anyone. Do not trust your emails anymore. Uh, you see, it could be written by artificial intelligence. Do not trust anything, but it does not mean we do have to hate the media. We do not have to hate the Internet. We just have to learn to be cautious. And um, I would like to compare it to, let's say, early human being, prehistoric humans, Neolithic people, they were roaming the forests and the fields and they would pick berries and they would find mushrooms and they would know, don't eat this mushroom, it must be poisonous. But there's an automatic sort of caution. Be careful with an unknown mushroom. Be careful with this or that. And I'm sure that um, Neolithic people, hunters and gatherers, did not hate nature that just had the right attitude. Uh, just be cautious and you roam around and you'll find the right thing. You can love nature without romanticizing it. Exactly, yes. And you can um, love the internet and artificial intelligence without romanticizing it because it has phenomenal possibilities. It's extraordinary. But at the same time, be vigilant. We'll be back with more from Werner Herzog after the break.
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. In a lot of ways, we're, we're kind of talking about the uses and the misuses of language. And I am fascinated by your fascination with the limits of language. Why does this interest you so much? Because uh, as a poet, you have to discover the outer margins of your language. Where does it go? Where does language start to unravel? Where do images uh, become unclear? I can give you a, an example. When I traveled on foot from Munich to Paris in early winter, and I wrote a diary and a book which is called Of Walking in Ice. I did this because my mentor, an old Jewish woman, um, who had fled Nazi Germany was dying at age 80 or so. And I said, uh, I will not allow her to die. I'm going to travel on foot now. I didn't tell her and I came and I said to myself, one million steps in defiance. It's like a pilgrimage and when I arrive, she will be out of hospital, which she actually was. At the end, I uh, walked nonstop 85 kilometers. That's awfully long and against snowstorms against you a whole day, a whole night and almost another whole day. And I arrived and somehow the images or language came apart and I said a very odd thing to her. I said to her, together, we shall cook a fire and we set and we shall stop fish. You see, um, you cook a meal, but you do not cook a fire. Language became somehow not correct anymore. And we stop the traffic, but we do not stop fish. And she looked at me within a fleeting moment of understanding. And I said to her, please open the window from these days on I can fly. So it was as laconic as that. But I noticed that my language was incorrect. The metaphors were incorrect. 
And it's important, I think, for poets to understand where are the outer limits of what you can pass on through language. You're a poet at heart. I, I wish I was. I've tried to write poetry. I, I just, um, I don't have it. But you're sort of speaking to the power of poetry, I think, right? That it lives at this border between language and meaning, that it uses language to express truths that we don't have a language for exactly. That is correct. But we have approximations. We have a quest out there and we pursue it. And um, I describe, for example, in another book, uh, and I think even in my memoirs, that sometimes there's a, a vortex of words in me that I can't get out of my mind. It's sometimes like you're haunted by a melody, a silly melody, and you can't get it out of your mind for weeks and weeks. You drive in a car and it comes back to you. And for me, sometimes like a vortex of words. And uh, all of a sudden, at a moment where I, I name them and I write them down in a specific situation, liberates me from this vortex. So it's very, very odd how language sometimes is playing its crazy games with me. Do you think that certain truths can only be expressed in their native language, that certain thoughts can only be thought in the language that conceived them? Yes, yes, because there's a deep worldview always involved in language, and this is one of the reasons why I have been most fascinated by the disappearance of languages. We are too much looking at the disappearance of, let's say, uh, mammals like whales or like uh, uh, the panda bear or the snow leopard or whatever species of amphibians, frogs, uh, that are very endangered. And, and we overlook that uh, some of the most precious things, like languages, whole cultures disappear without a trace. We have about 7,000 languages left, roughly. And every 10 days or 12 days, we are losing one. There are 14, 15 languages out right now where there is only one single last speaker of that language left. And while we are talking here, one of those may die right now. And with him or her, the last traces of a whole culture, of a worldview, of a language, of song will disappear and I find this is catastrophic. It goes faster than any extinction of species, disappearance, extinction of cultures and languages. So, of course, it's a deep thing for me, and my wife uh, has actually done an installation called uh, Last Whispers, an oratorio that was composed of extinct languages, meaning only existing in tape recordings, and voices in songs of uh, critically endangered languages, meaning there's only one single last speaker left, or maybe two or three. I get the sense that you think poets are really the glue of civilization. I think you write even in the book at some point that, that only the poets can hold Germany together. Well, I traveled on foot around the borders, all the sinuations of the borders around Germany to hold it together like a belt before the reunification. 
politics had given up, or some part of politics, including the German Chancellor Willy Brandt, whom I liked. But he declared the book of the German unity is closed, which uh, a German Chancellor should not declare in a official declaration at, at the Bundestag, the Parliament. And I thought it's only the poets who will, in our culture, that holds a country together. And I traveled on foot along where I grew up, was right at the Austrian border and then up and down the mountains and along Austria, Switzerland, France, Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg, Denmark. I never completed this whole round around Germany because I fell ill and was in hospital for a week or so. And then all of a sudden the Berlin Wall fell and I knew this will lead to the unification which actually happened. Yeah, I love that quote from Albert Camus that the, that the job of the writer is to keep civilization from destroying itself. Certainly, I would include the poets. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I did not know he said that. I would like to quote the greatest of all uh, German poets, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, Hölderlinia, and he said, what remains forever or so is, is made by the poets yeah, I read a good bit of Heidegger when I was in college, and, and he turned me on to Holderlin. I, I wish I could read German, but I cannot, and I get the sense that there's there's no way to understand what he was saying if, if you can't read it in the original German. Yeah, and well, Holderlin, he became insane, and uh, his language unravels. He, he was the one, actually, who went to the very outer limits of, of my language, German, and um, it comes apart and unravels. And that's very, very tragic and also very fascinating to see that. And Heidegger, well, how can I say, I've never cracked the Heidegger code. No one has. I'm not even sure he knew what he was saying <laughs> at the time. <laughs> what, whatever, yeah. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert. You, you're much more into philosophy than I am. But uh, I think he was a great philosopher, but uh, up to a certain degree and... and what comes, what is beyond our comprehension is maybe dubious. I was re-watching some of your documentaries when I was preparing for this, and it struck me, uh, again, how well you're able to let people show themselves, even when you're directing them. Yeah. Is that a very deliberate thing for you, paying attention to people in that way, seeing their true nature and, and pushing them to reveal it? Of course, I do not have to push them. Most of the cases, there's no push. But you have to have such a fascination and radiate it and, and awe and sympathy. They open up and you have to have it in you. If you make films like that, you have to have it in you. That's a profession of a director. And when you do a documentary, you have to be a director. You should not be the fly on the wall. The fly on the wall would be the camera, the surveillance camera in the bank. And for 15 years, it records nothing because no bank robbery ever happens. So wait another 15 years and still there wouldn't be a, anything of significance, nothing worth recording. So I interfere. I shape. I'm the, the hornet out there that stings. And uh, that's what I think is, is filmmaking. We are creators. I think your films have given me an appreciation for how much space there is for revelation in silence. And often 
the only way to see someone is to just shut the hell up and get out of the way, which seems simple enough, but a lot of people don't do it, but you do. And I think it's uh, to your credit. And uh, many of them follow some sort of a journalistic approach. They come with a catalog of questions. I never have a paper with a catalog. I just listen and I start to follow leads and I dig very deep. I want to look deep into the heart of men and also, of course, women. So, And if you don't have it in you as a director to see the heart of men, you should not be a director. Well, you can be a journalist and it's all what you see on television, day in, day out, totally legitimate but not my kind of filmmaking, not my kind of writing. We'll be back with more from Werner Herzog after one more break. I think the chapter in the book about the projects you wanted to make but weren't able to for whatever reason, it might be my favorite, certainly one of my favorites. You wanted to make a film with Mike Tyson. You wanted to blow up an opera house in Sicily. <laughs> well, an, an abandoned opera house. It was built probably mafia. I should, yeah, to be clear. Yes, there were no people in it. Exactly. Yeah. Mafia money and in the city of a, a small obscure town, Shaka, in southern Sicily, uh, built it, I think, uh, mostly laundering uh, mafia money. And now it's there. It has no administration, no opera ever was played in there, no technicians, no singer, no choir, nothing. But I couldn't do it. So that was the end of the project. And, of course, many other projects. One of the projects I'm actually trying to pursue now, a story about twins, uh, young twin women who spoke in unison. It's phenomenal. Sometimes twins create a secretive language, but they exchange in this language. But there were two twins twin sisters who spoke in unison. Even if you asked them a question, they could not expect. They would ask like a chorus. And uh, the project is called Bucking Fastered. Not the fucking bastard, but Bucking Fastered. They made the same slip of tongue in a court, uh, in a court hearing. They were testifying together. And they shouted across the courtroom. There were defendants and a truck driver tried to get a restraining order against them. And they yell across the courtroom uh, simultaneously. He's lying. Don't you hear? Every word is a lie. He's lying under oath. The bucking fasted is lying. They make the same slip of tongue at the same moment. How do you come upon these subjects, these stories? Do they just, uh, do you just collide with them? No, no, I find them. I don't know. Sometimes they find me. So some kind of gravitational pull that they just, uh, they find you? There's something, something out there. They find me, I find them. And I, I actually was very close in contact with them, letters, met them. 
took them out in a restaurant, for example, which uh, was a big deal for them because they were very shy. They wouldn't like to leave their apartment. So I do find them, and they, they, I stumble into them, or they stumble into me as well. If there was one project, if you had to pick one project that you never quite got off the ground but, but wish you did, which one would it be? Is it the Opera House? No, I am describing a dozen or so projects, and and of course there were projects that I couldn't do. For example, the conquest of Mexico, but seen from the perspective of the Aztecs. Aliens are landing, the ships are descending from clouds, and they bring miraculous stags with them, I mean horses, and and they create thunder from barrels, I mean cannons and things. So a, a totally alien invasion for them. And of course, it would have been very, very expensive. You have to build pyramids and temples and recreate the capital city, Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City today, canals like Venice today, and... Uh, thousands of extras and open battles and you just name it. It was just too expensive. It would have required a huge Hollywood budget, but Hollywood would only finance it and uh, side with me if my last film made, let's say, $400 million box office domestic. Then they would approach me and say, oh, let's do that together. But I do not lose a, a sleepless night over this. It's okay. And people said, ah, you have to pursue it. It's so beautiful. And why don't you try on? I said, uh, in 20 years, I'm not going to find the money either because there are some iron laws of the industry, which I thankfully, I understand them. And I said, no, I plow on. There's many other things in this, in the last 20 years of this undone project. I've made 27 films. Well, speaking of expensive, I read recently that you wanted to go to space and even applied with the Japanese company for an opportunity to do it. I did. They turned you down, which is outrageous, I should say. No, they didn't turn me down. They still, they didn't respond to my application because there were, must have been thousands. It's actually a Japanese billionaire who uh, invites eight guests or something like that and flying out and flying around moon. And I argued, uh, you you got to have a poet along with you. I send a daily poem down to earth in the short movie. Is that why you wanted to go? Because I, I wanted to ask, why did you want to go in the first place? Because it's a perspective that is completely new for a filmmaker, for a poet. I would also go to Mars, but let's face it, I applied against the vigorous objections of my wife, <laughs> yeah, <bad. laughs> which, I, which I understand, but I applied anyway. And I was not turned down. I'd never got an answer, so I was not elected. Well, that's, uh, that's equally outrageous, but I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> no, no, come on, come on. They, uh, <laughs> the other eight people who are instead of me there will enjoy it tremendously. I've always been enamored with what astronauts call the overview effect. Almost every person who, who goes to space and looks back down on Earth describes the same kind of transformative experience where they can really feel how special this place is against the backdrop of space. Do you suspect you'd feel the same way? Maybe it would give you a whole new appreciation for the, uh, for the chaos of the world? 
I do have a lot of appreciation for, for our world, sometimes even against my better judgment. But probably I would have a similar experience. I do not want to predict what would happen. But what I find very, very significant is one of these Voyager missions that has left our solar system, I think, launched in the 70s, made photos back of planet Earth. And the last photo I think that we have is a tiniest speck of a star somewhere out there, and that's our planet Earth. So how insignificant we are, that's really stunning. But from our moon, planet Earth is very close. From Mars, it's still fairly close. It's not this really far out view of what we are and where we are. But totally fascinating for me. I would instantly go. While we're on the subject of Earth, our home, do you think humanity is destroying itself? Um, that's part of what is, is happening to us. But we have to face it uh, biologically. We are very vulnerable. And we have it somehow in us that is self-destructive, that's not healthy. But um, I do not believe that we will have a permanent existence here on our planet. So the way um, dinosaurs disappeared, I'm pretty certain we will disappear as well. It doesn't make me nervous, by the way. I'm not sure I've ever thought of you as a pessimist, but I, I do think of you as someone who's very clear-eyed about the fragility of civilization, really. I mean, do, do you even think in these terms, that, does the language of pessimism and optimism mean anything to you at all? Or is it just the wrong, wrong language? No, no, I avoid it. Yeah, it's, it's too primitive to categorize a person as an optimist, a pessimist. I'm just looking at what's out there. Who are we? How fragile is our own biology? How fragile are societies? For example, if the if the internet disappears from one moment to the next, and it can if we have a massive, a real massive solar flare, or if we have, uh, let's say, a, a war event that will destroy all the servers and route us, we would be without internet. And it would be like New York City, and I'm sitting here in New York City downtown, um, when the um, uh, hurricane hit all of a sudden below 32nd Street or so was without electricity, without internet, without cell phone coverage. And my wife who was here at exactly that time says tens of thousands of people were dazed and confused and moving north in Manhattan Island just in search of a toilet, of a flushable toilet, tens of thousands. And all of a sudden within days, we are thrown back in a situation like hunters and gatherers. And that doesn't bode well for our species because you can go up to Central Park and hunt the squirrels, but it will not feed you for long. Not eight million inhabitants will eat long and survive long on a few squirrels in the park. So it doesn't look good. And a good survival would be, for example, for tribal hunters and gatherers like the Inuit. They don't need the internet. Or for the Amish who are doing homestead farming without technology. 
they don't have electricity or many of the fundamentalist Amish don't have electricity, they don't have cars, they don't have fridges, and they live very well. They would survive. I loved your film, Lo and Behold, as an exploration of the internet and what it's done, what it's doing to us. And I think it makes the point far better than I can, and I've certainly tried, about how these sorts of technological revolutions aren't really planned. And the people who give birth to these revolutions, these technologies, haven't the faintest idea of what it will lead to. Yeah. But it's interesting, to, and I guess not surprising, that the digital world and social media and that kind of thing, it doesn't really exist for you. You're not on those things. Is that just a clear decision you made at some point to abstain? No, I would say long live the digital world. And I'm using it. I'm using it for uh, filming. Yeah. I use it for editing. I use it for communications. I do emails. My main tool of communication is email, but I do not need to be part of certain things that are out possibly in the internet. I'm not on social networks. If you find me on Twitter or on Facebook, they are forgeries. And there are many forgeries of voice imitators out there. I have lots of doppelgangers, lots of duplicates. Let them be out there. <laughs> I don't mind. But if you listen uh, to that, you know it's forgeries. And if you find me on Facebook, it's a complete forgery then. You asked people at the end of Lo and Behold, actually, I'm just thinking of it, um, if they thought the internet dreams of itself. And I love the question, and I didn't quite understand it. I still don't think I understand it. So I think I'm just going to ask you if you think the internet dreams of itself. Well, that's the deepest of all questions, I think, and, and not really fully answerable. And I have to admit, it is uh, just a projection of... Uh, a statement by a war theoretician, Napoleonic time, a Prussian war theoretician, von Clausewitz. And apparently von Clausewitz uh, once in his uh, study on war, which is a, still a revolutionary insight into war, into warfare, he said, it seems that war sometimes dreams of itself. It's a stunning statement and I extended it as the internet dream of itself. The strange thing now is that experts on von Clausewitz told me von Clausewitz never said that. Maybe I invented it and talked myself over decades so much into it that I believe it was von Clausewitz. So it's very odd how our memory is shifting and, and shaping its own world, shaping its own quotations from uh, books. But it's the deepest of all questions. Does the internet dream of itself? And you can uh, extend it. Uh, does artificial intelligence dream of itself? And that's where it gets interesting. Yeah, it's been a few years since I watched the film. I, I watched it again a few weeks ago, and I the question just lingered with me. It sort of runs over my head, I think, but I sense the the depth of it. If you put it to me, I, I wouldn't have an answer. And there's not a single scientist in the film who can answer it. Yeah, They're puzzled, they're stunned that a filmmaker is asking this question. But I'm not so much a filmmaker. In that case, I'm a poet who asks them, and they sense it. Do you think much about legacy? I mean, you talk about being a poet and you talk about how you think your writing will survive longer than your films. I think so, yes. Why do you think that is? 
I can't really give you a clear answer. I, I, that there's a gut, a gut understanding and feeling that uh, this will last, and that my prose and my poetry has an intensity that is beyond the illumination or the intensity of the films. And people always are puzzled, how does he reconcile being a filmmaker and a poet? And I have a simple formula now that makes it very easily understood. Filmmaking is my voyage, but poetry writing is home. So is the filmmaking more experimental and exploratory for you, whereas the writing feels more settled and secure, if that makes any sense at all? Well, we shouldn't try to to analyze now this very simple <laughs> yeah. dictum. I have a nasty habit of doing that sometimes. No, no, it's uh, self-explanatory. I couldn't even explain any further. I'm glad that I have a simple formula. Let's keep it simple then. Um, I've read your books and watched most of your films, if, if not all, and I guess I didn't. Um, I didn't have a full appreciation for the diversity and the adventurousness of your life until I read the book. It really is a quite remarkable life. And the connection between your experiences, what you've actually done, the ways that you have collided with the world and other people is so essential to the work that you've done. It's true, yes, and it's puzzling. It's puzzling because there was an intensity of life as if it had been five lives in a row and things that... uh, you normally do not do as a writer or as a filmmaker. And people immediately start to doubt, am I telling them wild stories? Did I really move a ship over a mountain? Yes, I did. It's documented. Did I put a whole cast of actors under hypnosis? Yes, I did. It's it's documented. Was I shot during a live interview for BBC? Yes, I was shot. I mean, it was not a very big wound that I had, but uh, I was shot and it's on tape. It's caught on tape. And on and on, and and for example, New York Times, the writer is completely puzzled. Is this all invented or so? But it's, you see, no stone was left unturned. I gave the memoirs to my two brothers, verified. In some cases, I had a different different shade of, of experience, but that's legitimate. That's fine. Or for example, did I do a stunt at the opera house in Bologna where... I wanted to have a stage worker falling from the skies and through the stage, and there was not money enough for a stuntman, so I tested it myself. Immediately doubted, but there's a series of photos, and I have them where you see me flying through the air. And of course, at the bottom, there was a huge air cushion, the same thing that uh, Hollywood uses for stuntmen. So things are documented, and all the big things, of course, uh, had uh, dozens of witnesses or crew members or actors, extras. You just name it. You can't make it up. Werner, I have admired your work for many, many years, and it was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Once again, the book is called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. Thank you so much for coming in today. And thank you, and greetings to Mississippi. Thank you. Come on down. (music) 
This episode was produced by Caitlin Boguki. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode with help from Chris Shirtliff. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solen is our fact checker. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think of this episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And please share it with your friends on all these socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com give.